I explain why I'm leaving, goddammit. I told you I'll be back. You're leaving because you don't want to be around when Nick dies. You don't want to deal with me going through that. You'll come wafting back when it's all over. You better stay away, man, or you're gonna come back to a fucking maniac. You think I could be mean now? I'm gonna go after every politician, idiot, doctor, and smug, born-again asshole I can get my hands on. Hello, and welcome to 80s Movie Montage. This is Derek. And this is Anna. And that was Robert and Michael. Michael. Having kind of a, a final confrontation in this movie, talking about Nick, played by Steve Buscemi. Correct. In this week's movie. Parting glances. But you already know, because you clicked well, on this. Well done, Derek, with uh, moving us through <laughs> that all those relationships. I mean, it was kind of a, a climactic point of the movie, certainly in their relationship, Robert yeah. and Michael's. They had a couple, I would say, throughout the course of the film, but that is definitely one of those moments. There are a lot of, I mean, there's some lightheartedness in the movie, but there's a lot of difficult issues, mm -hmm. and this was kind of the culmination of Robert letting Michael know that he just, he loved him, but he just had to get away, mm -hmm. and Michael accusing him of, well, you're just leaving because you can't stand to see what's what's happening to Nick. Yeah, I mean, this movie, so this film, like we had mentioned with our special guest, Joe, is really different from most of the films that we've covered so far, in part because of how indie the film is. I mean, this is nothing like a Back to the Future or... It did not it, have that budget. No, no, no. I mean, it actually, so it, in fact, is so indie that... There's not a wealth of information out there about the film or the driving force behind it, Bill Sherwood. But from what I did read, I saw that the budget was just a touch over $300,000 for the yeah. film, which sounds like a decent amount of money. But when you're filming in New York, which I do know that it was filmed on location, so it's set in New York, it was filmed in New York. As evidenced by the multiple sirens you heard in that opening clip, that wasn't us. <laughs> yeah, so they fil filmed on location. And, you know, once you get through paying your actors, paying your crew, although much like many indie films, Sherwood did a lot of heavy lifting and wore a lot of hats. Yeah which we're about to get into. But it is a really interesting film because it doesn't necessarily have the polish of, you know, the huge blockbusters, many of which that we've covered already from this era. But on the flip side of that, it has really interest. Like it, we talk about it with Joe where it has this really interesting grounding in reality in terms of the relationships portrayed. Yeah. And the difficulties between the different individuals in those relationships. So, okay, let's jump in. So, Parting Glances, 1986. Mm -hmm. So, we're pretty much still in the middle of the decade. Uh, I'd say so. I'd say so. So, the gentleman behind this film, Bill Sherwood. Such an interesting figure who ultimately again we don't have a ton of information about because unfortunately he passed away so so young uh he passed away at just 37 years old he passed in 1990 so four years after mm -hmm. this film came out yep. um 
if you're not familiar with Parting Glances, one of the main storylines is how Nick, who, as Derek mentioned, is portrayed by Steve Buscemi, he is a character who is dealing with his AIDS diagnosis and the fact that at this time in history, there really wasn't much that could be done for you. Yeah. So essentially a death sentence for yeah. him. Yeah. You know, we, we don't do this as often with most of the movies that we're covering because in, in many cases, people have some greater level of familiarity yeah. with them. But for those who haven't heard of or aren't familiar with Parting Glances, it essentially takes place over a 24-hour period, mm-hmm. and we're following Michael, whose partner, Robert, mm-hmm. is going to be flying out for a new job in Africa, mm-hmm. where he will be there for, I think, a couple two, years, couple years yeah. is what they were thinking. And and Michael is also dealing with trying to take care of his uh, friend, Nick, Steve Buscemi, mm-hmm. who, as you mentioned, is is dealing with an AIDS diagnosis mm-hmm. and, and terminal terminally ill condition. Mm-hmm. Although throughout the movie, he's well enough to like participate. He's he's in the movie, the party that they're he's at. a little defiant. Yeah. Um, all the things that Michael wants him to do, like not drink, not smoke, uh, eat healthy, yeah. he yeah. kind of pushes back on all of those things, um, which it makes sense. Like he doesn't want to be treated as like a child or an invalid. He. I get the sense just wants to be treated like everybody else, despite the diagnosis. Like he really doesn't want that to be something that impacts the way people see him. Yeah. He's very aware that it does though. I mean, when Michael first, the first time we see Michael come over and spend some time with him, Nick kind of says, Oh, like something to the effect of like, Oh, other people, they're not coming over because they think they can like catch it from me. Yes. So, He's it's, very aware. It's certainly like a, a big part of the movie, but there it's it's as much about that as it is just about the relationships between Robert, Michael, Nick, and some of the other characters that you see at, at I, I guess there are two, three different parties that they're at within the twenty four hour there there is a dinner with Robert's boss. Yeah, and that's a good point. Yep. And like then, a dinner party. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you get to see all these different characters and it's like a slice of, of all of their lives drawn throughout this period, but it is like focused on those three. Yeah, kind of. absolutely. And the reason why that is being brought up so early in our chat is because Sherwood himself, yeah. when I say that he passed very young, 37, he himself passed away from complications of AIDS. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't have any information at hand in terms of when he became aware that he was sick. Um, one thing that Joe mentioned to us is that actually the the actual filming, the principal photography of this film took place a little bit earlier. He said like 83, 84. Sure. That so sounds, That sounds normal. Yeah. So I'm not sure if at that point, because we're talking possibly seven years removed from when Sherwood passed away, um, that seems like a very long time to live with that disease at that point in history. Yeah. So I get the sense that maybe he became aware of his own health status maybe a little bit later on. But I'm just that's just conjecture. I have no idea. Yeah. But it's, there's not as much information. You'd have to do uh, heavier digging mm-hmm. to get mm-hmm. real um, specific info on some of some of these things. And another reason why this is being brought up, because we don't usually dive so deeply into somebody's personal life who's part of this film is because he's such a huge part of this he's such a huge part of it and because he passed so early this is it this is 
this is his one feature film. Yeah. Um, he did some shorts. I mean, he has an, from what I did read, he has an interesting history because he actually was more in the music world. He was kind of a musical prodigy. Okay. Um, did really well, but then eventually pivoted out and got interested in filmmaking. So in terms of like, you know, going through somebody's credits, usually there's a lot more that we go through. But this was written by Sherwood. This is his only feature film writing credit that's listed. And the same goes for his direction of the film. This is it. So it really is such an interesting departure from most of the films that we cover because we mentioned this with our guest, Joe. This is truly his legacy. This is... You know, for having one film that he put out in the world, one feature film, what a film to put out, you know, and we kind of go through that discussion with Joe about like why it's so poignant in terms of like its portrayals of gay relationships and the authenticity of it, um, kind of the progressive nature of it for 1986. Yeah, no, we, we talk about that with him where it seems it seems simultaneously heavily rooted in the 80s but so far ahead of its time, just in the way, the, the fact that it portrays some of the issues that it does and the way that it portrays them mm-hmm. is is just very much unlike most of what you would see in the 80s. And going At into least, the 90s yeah, and the whole yeah. deal. So, yeah. So, okay. Written oh, by, yeah. One, one other thing I want to mention. We, yeah. The version we, we watched was, because of the indie nature of this film, there isn't like a like director's cut HD criterion. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But in 2006, uh, Outfest and the UCLA film and television archive did announce that it was going to be restored as part of their Outfest legacy project. I think it might've been the very first film to get that. So it was in, in uh, July 16th, 2007, they had a uh, screening of the restored project, and the four major stars of the film were, were oh, present for that. Oh, that's so, really cool. Yeah, yeah. That's so cool. So I guess we're talking about the actors who played Michael, Robert, Nick, and Joan? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And then they had another viewing at the Lincoln Center in uh, October of 2007. That's really so cool. We did not see the restored version, I assume. <laughs> All right. Well... On a somewhat related note, moving on to the figure who did the cinematography for this film. Boy, I'm going to try very hard to pronounce this correctly. I'm going to say it's Jacek Lakus. I like it. Uh, yeah, we're going to go with that. So, um, <laughs> you know, has had uh, a more extensive career over the course of his uh professional life i mean among some of his credits i just put this one down because it's so interesting i couldn't even imagine what the film is about but a3520 for piano solo oh don't know but in any case wow the next one i know a lot better he shot the music video for the outfield your love the outfield oh you gotta know josie's on a vacation i can't even say Oh, okay. <laughs> That's as close as I'm ever going to no, get. No, that was excellent. <laughs> no, it wasn't, but <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so that song. All right. So he did that. Um, he did the, did you ever see the film Square Dance? Is that a sequel to Footloose? No, no, it's not. It's oh, not. But no. Um, so 
if I'm remembering correctly, and I think I am, I'm looking it up right now. Mm-hmm. Um, is this the one? Oh, is this the one I'm thinking of? Yeah, it is the one I'm thinking of. So, you know, we talk about problematic movies. We do. This, believe it or not, this film has Winona Ryder and Rob Lowe in it. Okay. A film, yeah, exactly. Like, it has two huge stars, but in a film that you've probably never heard of. Huh. And Rob Lowe plays somebody who has, like, cognitive challenges. All right. But the way in which, I, I don't know. I don't think it aged well, but it's been ages since I've seen it. What is this movie? I remember seeing it when I was really young and even then thinking, like, this is kind of a... This is, they shouldn't have done this. Yeah, I don't know if this <laughs> this film should have been made. But, okay. Um, in any case. Well, how was the cinematography? This uh, Was it shot beautifully? Great, beautifully. Okay. <laughs> From what I recall. So, yes. That's all you can do. Um, he shot Square Dance, movie Heart. I had to put this one in. Wait, Square Dance was that movie with them? Yeah. Okay. Have So, wait, have you seen it? No. Oh, okay. No. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's just, it's an odd film. In any case. Okay. Square Dance, Heart, Stepfather 2, Make Room for Daddy. That sounds ominous. Don't you remember I brought that up during Day of the Dead? That's why I put it in here. Yeah, I do. I do, actually, yeah. (laughs) So, so I feel like at some point we're going to have to watch it because it keeps resurfacing. Maybe. So, from what I can tell from his career, he kind of bounces back and forth between the worlds of like narrative cinema and documentary. Mm. So he's done several documentaries among them, Cousin Bobby. He did the narrative film, The Opposite Sex and How to Live with Them. Okay. He, he did another doc called It Was a Wonderful Life, which sounds kind of sad. Oh. The brief look I had at it, it is pretty sad. I, uh, yeah. I guess I've never really wondered what the it's contraction stood for, but I guess it it does make more sense for it to be it is a wonderful life. I think that's the intention yeah. of the Capra film. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. in the present tense, it is a, it is a wonderful life. Okay. But here, it was a wonderful life. He did The Undercover Kid. He did The Giving Tree, which is not to be confused with the awesome. Yeah, it has nothing uh, to do with the book, which is actually kind of a shame. I just looked it up and I don't recall the uh, suicide in Shel Silverstein's collection of. uh, But it has like Molly Ringwald in it, doesn't it? I think. In any case. Yeah, it's got. uh, But it has. Christina Applegate. Yeah. You were finding all these like. I, I'm not Random surprised. films with I, yeah. big names in it that people don't know of. Um, yeah. well, he shot the TV series The Guardian. He did a film called Frankie and Johnny Are Married. Hmm. Uh, he did another doc called The Human Face of Big Data. And then of his more recent work, a film called Love and Debt. <laughs> Which, that sounds just like everyday life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so moving on to editing. Well... As I mentioned earlier, this was an indie film. Sometimes you got to play multiple roles when you are the driving force behind an indie film, and that's exactly what happened here, too. So in addition to being the writer and director of this film, Bill Sherwood was also the editor on this film. That's a lot of work. A lot of work. 
not unusual for indie film for yeah. that to be the case, but it is a lot of work. I mean, there's a, a different technical aspect to the editing that, in, I, I, I don't know, compared to some of the other roles he might he might be in. So, um, well, at that I, I, point, at least as far as I'm, as far as I know, but maybe it was different then. Well, I don't know if you're thinking about different programs, but we're thinking 1986. So he's, he's actually cutting he's cutting film. and splicing. Yeah, he's okay. cutting and splicing film. Uh, still a tech, like a you have to have a technical proficiency with that. He doesn't need to know uh, particular software applications, though. Avid, really. Final Pro. Yeah, those those things were not even a glimmer in the eye of their creators yeah, yet. It's a good point. Okay. Um, so. Yeah, but still, it's it's. I mean, I and if they were, he wasn't using them. If I may go on a small tangent, I will say that to my knowledge, most film schools, I don't think because they're not shooting on film anymore, and so the students aren't learning how to cut and splice. I actually was in a film program where we did still shoot on film for like our earlier um, films and did have to cut and splice, and I feel like that was so instrumental to me understanding the world of editing yeah that i think it's actually kind of a shame that they don't do that anymore but that's just me um so yeah bill sherwood writer director editor, editor. and no oh, so on a related note normally we bring up the composer there's no composer listed what is so interesting about this there is music there is mu- a lot of it it opens like honestly for the first couple almost full minutes of the film, I was like, there's dialogue, right, to this movie because it is just a musical sequence with Michael and Robert. Yeah. And so I was, like, kind of wondering... Did he just do it, Bill? Because he Given was a... his musical background, yeah, he could possibly, I don't really know for sure. But lot. there's a lot of, like, there is a score to this film. And when I didn't see a composer listed, I was, like, wondering, oh, okay, I wonder what that will be come across as if there's not really a lot of music in the film but there is Mm -hmm. so my guess is that sherwood was also behind it but it just wasn't credited the way that it normally i don't know i mean he's credited as the music department as the exactly exactly and that's it so so we already are jumping to the people in this film so um yeah we got through it really quickly uh first of which the actor who plays michael his name is Richard Gagnon. I like that. Okay. Yeah. This was his very first film role. As you will see with these people, these are a lot of firsts or seconds for most of the people yeah. in this film. So, And again, I think that kind of goes hand in hand with the indie nature of the film. So it's absolutely wild that Steve Buscemi has gone on to become the hugely known movie star that he is i think that that's probably every indie film director's like hope that the people in their film become big stars because then that kind of like retroactively brings more attention to their film which i do actually think is maybe kind of the case here i think not to take away from the film itself regardless of the name the name helps like open the door. Yeah, it gets you. It gets you there so that you can appreciate. You know what is like really a well done film. And the fact that you mentioned that Buscemi was among the actors who came back for that restored, yeah. like that's huge. That he yeah. is still so proud of it. 
that I mean sometimes people become kind of dicks and they like <laughs> don't don't give appreciation for you know the building blocks to their careers like yeah. these earlier films so I think that that's really cool that he did yeah like that man versus food guy that hated that he was known for man versus food come on I mean we can go down a whole rabbit hole I mean um who's the who's James Bond and in the way that he was like so like prickly about the fact that he had to play James. Oh, Daniel you had, to, Craig. you had to play James Bond one more time. Poor you. And you're getting like like showered in money for it. Poor you. I mean, we might edit this out. No. <laughs> <laughs> so in any case, and, and it actually does show because if you go to the IMDb page for this film, the like poster, the image that they give for it. Yeah doesn't even have michael the actor who played michael on it no it's uh it's a huge image of steve buscemi <laughs> and then there's like shirtless robert a little insert of the actor who plays robert yeah um so it does show you kind of what they do after the fact to bring more attention to perhaps the more successful individuals who were connected with the film i mean shirtless robert puts shirtless Lance Hendrickson to shame. Oh, I'm sorry. Who else did we have? Shirtless. We had we had shirtless Lance Hendrickson. Oh, uh, Roddy Roddy Piper. Well, Piper, you know, puts everybody to yeah, shame. Yeah. yeah, we've had a lot of shirtless lately, haven't we? We have. Okay, so moving <laughs> moving on to um, Richard's actual like other credits. Not not a ton of acting credits, but among some of his other roles, he was in True Identity. I remember this movie, Billy's Hollywood Screen Kiss. He did some voice work on the TV series Astro Boy. Yeah, he did a ton of that between 1980 and 2004. Wow, so that's where so, he got, like, that's where there you go. he put his time. Yeah, yeah exactly. I think, I think he's probably done well just off that. Yeah, I'm sure. He was in the film Scrooge and Marley. What and then, <laughs> what could that possibly be about? Yeah. And then No God, No Master. That is the sequel to No Woman, No Cry. <laughs> moving on yeah to john bolger who plays michael's boyfriend robert mm -hmm. this was his second film role so again like very early in all of these different actors hmm. careers he's done i mean he's been working very steadily since he is as prolific as any of the talent that we cover in, in any of these other movies oh absolutely Honestly, yeah it looks like I mean, he bounces around to different kinds of projects, but it seems like he's definitely found a sweet spot in the daytime TV soap opera world. A lot of, a lot of TV. Yeah, and a yeah. lot of TV just in general. But yeah. among some of his credits, we have the soap opera Guiding Light. Mm. We have the TV series Everything's Relative, the film Loose Cannons, TV oh, series. Oh, Loose Cannons. Oh, you I do? Think. I don't. Sounds familiar. Okay. He was on the TV series True Blue as well as Loving. He's on another soap opera called Another World. He's in the films Black and White, Just Looking, Pride and Loyalty, Ned Kelly, A Merry Little Christmas. He comes back to the soap opera world. Thank God. Thank God. With General Hospital. And then a couple more recent films, The Only Living Boy in New York, and we had this band. All right, yeah, and also just uh, to give a little bit more uh, publicity to Loose Cannons, starring Gene Hackman and Dan Aykroyd. Oh, yeah. so do you then know 90s. that movie? I, I do, okay. yeah. Okay. I don't remember whether I liked it or not, but I just remember the title. Okay. Yeah. 
Well, moving on to the gentleman that we've already been talking about quite a bit, Steve Buscemi. Mm-hmm. So he plays Nick. Uh, I mean, I feel like most people know Steve Buscemi. Up to this point in time, he has 166 acting credits. So he's he has been... his own meme. Oh, does he? The fellow kids. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. This was his third film role. So still very, very early in was his... Was it? I thought... I thought it was his first, but maybe the first major role. I don't know. Well, let's take a look. Are you calling me out right now? No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm remembering I what I read just about the film. This handy itself. dandy thing called a computer right in front of me. Yeah. So I can see very quickly. And I'm just trying to buy time while I scroll down to the bottom of his filmography. This does make it more difficult to edit. <laughs> so, yeah. He So his very first credit was a film called The Way It Is. Mm-hmm. Then he was in a short mm-hmm. called Tommy's and then Parting Glances. Got it. I do not stand corrected. I was cracked. <laughs> All right. So... Boy, I didn't do a very good job of narrowing down all of his credits. Um, I think I have, oh boy, 30, 34. He's done done so much, and there's such a variety of of roles, you Mm -hmm. know, and things that he's been in. I mean, anything, well, I'll let you go through them, but that's, that's the first thing that comes to me is just how, like, the range that he has. And part of the reason why I put in certain credits is because this this wasn't necessarily a star-making turn for him. He still was like pounding the pavement and taking other smaller, obscure roles for a good while. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know to what extent this would have been a reality, but I don't know that this particular movie in this role would have necessarily made him like bankable like people right. would have seen it and and thought like yes this was a great performance what do we do right like, what what would this i like, mean generalize or translate to i was telling you that it, it, while it is hard to kind of suss out how i feel about him as an actor because i can't help but think about all of the really like amazing like other critically acclaimed performances he's put out into the world mm-hmm. and so it's hard for me to not think of him as like, oh, no, he's a really good actor. But I do actually think that in his scenes with Michael, which are my favorite scenes to begin with, that not to take away from the actor who plays Michael, but that those scenes are really elevated yeah. in part because of Buscemi's performance. It reinforces what we kind of already knew, which is that he is a very talented actor. Yep. But you're seeing him in this movie in a way that's different from most everything else you would have seen him in. Yep, absolutely. So... Like I was saying, you know, he was doing a lot of work in in film. And he pretty – well, I'll get to it in a minute. I mean, he almost exclusively was working in film and only kind of later in his career made a pivot into television. But he was in The Way It Is, Sleepwalk, His Daddy Goodnight, Heart. So he's in the film Heart. Mm. Uh, Call Me, Vibes, Bloodhounds of Broadway – king of new york so probably this is about the time where he starts to get recognition and he starts to get cast in more high profile films because then he starts working on films like miller's crossing barton fink billy bathgate 
Reservoir Dogs. Yes, famously. That that's probably what most people would associate as far as like his big breakout first. Yes. That, that's yeah. I feel though that those couple films I mentioned just before though kind of set him up to even be considered for the role yeah. in Reservoir Dogs. Although yeah. that being said, I mean, we talk about Reservoir Dogs again with this kind of revisionist like look because now we know who quentin tarantino is like yeah he's you know and this was one of his very first films so it's like he wasn't quentin tarantino at that point um in any case (laughs) no no one said his name like that then (laughs) the hudsucker proxy he does have um a cameo do you know who he is in pulp fiction he is uh buddy holly good job yeah good job i cheated well, at least I guess you admitted that you cheated, which negates the cheat. Uh, he's in Airheads. Yes. Things to yeah, eh. things to do in Denver when you're dead. Desperado, Fargo, mm-hmm. Escape from L.A., Con Air. His other probably most notable role, The Big Lebowski. You think? Yeah, I think so. Trees Lounge was another like kind of indie-ish movie that he was in. That oh, he, he I didn't was, even like, include that one. Prominently. He's a big part of that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he is really funny in The Wedding Singer. I like him in The Wedding Singer, <laughs> yes. his bit part. Armageddon, Ghost World. He's really good in Ghost World. Yes. Excellent, excellent film. He's in Mr. Deeds. Seems like he kind of has a relationship with... Um, I didn't put them all in, but... He put seems, something together with Sandler, right? Yeah, he definitely yeah. put something together with Sandler. Uh, so Mr. Deeds, he's in Spy Kids 2 and 3. He's a big fish. And then, like I was saying, then kind of later on, he starts pivoting into more TV work. So he was on The Sopranos. He was on 30 Rock. He was, for a very long time, Boardwalk Empire. Yeah. Um, But all the while, he's still doing film work. Uh, He does more – he does voice work because he's in Hotel Transylvania, the original, and two, and three. So, again, a Sandler um, connection there. He – we didn't. We did not like this film. Oh, he's in the Dead Don't Die. Yeah, um, man, that movie felt like it had a lot of promise, but especially with the actors in it. Yeah, yeah, it was not good. No, come at us. It wasn't good. No one's, no <laughs> one's going to. The King of Staten Island. Much better. Hmm. Um. Am I projecting here? That he was part of that because of all the different connections with Staten Island, New York, 9-11, firefighters, Pete Davidson's father. There's a lot of uh, like behind the scenes footage and stuff out there with Judd Apatow because mm-hmm. they were promoting that primarily during like the, the pandemic mm-hmm. last year. Yeah. They were trying to be creative in ways. So there is a lot of promotional stuff out there talking about like how they how they got the film made. I think that might be part of why it's it's certainly like a connection yeah. with it. I, so I think I think there's a, a good chance. I can't remember for sure, but I think so. Yeah. If I mean, and it's funny because like when we uh, were watching Parting Glances, we're like, oh, he's so little, like he's so thin in the film. But in case you didn't know, like Steve Buscemi used to be a firefighter yeah. in New York. So small but mighty. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then more recently, he's been on the TV series Miracle Workers. So. Okay, so moving on to our last two individuals, the first of which is Adam Nathan, person with two first names, um, who <laughs> yes. plays Peter, the youngish, 
very handsome. He's hot and he knows it. He's hot and he knows it. Uh, individual in this film. Interesting inclusion of this character in the film. And we talk about it with Joe. Like, why was he part of it? And, like, what role does he play in it? I think we kind of talk a little bit more about how it's almost like he's a a younger version of Michael. Michael. Yeah. And I think that's, that's possibly right. Although, I don't know if... Michael would have necessarily been considered ridiculously, ridiculously good looking. I think I and this is honestly just coming to me now. I think what's interesting about his character is that he has a little bit more bravado about him. And I don't know if that is like a signaling of the times where somebody who's younger and gay is not as reclusive about it. Um, he's he's more out there with with just who he is yeah i mean nick's character well nick steve buscemi's character and pete talk about that about him coming out to his parents exactly and buscemi's character is kind of like did you you actually said that Mm -hmm. you know and pete's response is like in a in a way but it seems like pete is like this is who i am like he's comfortable with yeah yeah exactly so i don't know if there is an intention there to show a younger generation who's just more comfortable yeah with i don't know well, again, and that's one of the ways where it felt like watching this in 2021 and hearing someone say that is less, feels like less striking than it would have. Like that would Absolutely. have been much more profound in 1986 yes, to exactly. hear someone that comfortable with who they are. Yep. Yeah. I totally agree with you. As far as his acting work goes, um, not a huge list of credits. I mean, I, he must have pivoted into just other avenues in his professional life. Uh, among some of his credits, though, we have I Was a Teenage TV Terrorist. Cool, cool. Uh, Streets of Gold. And then I had to include this. He's in the music video for Michael Jackson's Bad. That's amazing. That's all you need. If you don't do anything else, yeah. Michael Jackson's Bad. Okay, and lastly, we come to Kathy Kenny, who plays Joan, uh, the friend who throws that going away party for mm-hmm. Robert. And this also very first film role so out the gate and sure it wasn't her third oh my goodness are you actually (laughs) no no you're right okay (laughs) okay so she i mean she does an incredible job and she does have you know a nice little list of like film credits that i'm about to go through but i think probably most people do know her from her tv work i think so and and probably drew carey but i think she has a surprisingly long list of credits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So among her different film credits, uh, she has parts in Scrooged, Three Fugitives, Stanley and Iris. You mentioned this with Joe, I think. Arachnophobia. Yes. This Boy's Life, Mr. Jones. And then among her like her TV work, she was on Newhart for a while. Amazing. She does vo- or did voice work for Big Guy and the... And Rusty, the boy robot. Oh. Like we mentioned, she was part of the Drew Carey show, I think, for the entire life of that show. I think she has like over 200 credits for that show. And she, I mean, I can't say that I was like, I I didn't didn't watch the show, but her character was kind of like the Drew Carey show's version of Newman to Seinfeld. Like, Drew Carey and her were constantly at odds. They were, yeah. She was She was not a 
it was not a flattering role. It wasn't a flattering se. role. But she, it's very she bombastic, yeah. big makeup, big she, outfits. Yes. Oh, big yeah. makeup. For yeah. Sure. Big yeah. makeup, big outfits. Um, so, yes, she's probably very well known for that show. She also was on The Secret Life of the American Teenager. And then outside of like her recurring roles on television, a lot of TV appearances. And when I say that, it's like one-offs where mm. she was like a guest star on something. So, okay. I should have, I almost brought this up at the top of the episode, but I was like, nope, I'm sticking to our format. Oh, okay. But you kind of already did it for me. I did. You kind of already set a synopsis for this film. Yeah, I realized after the fact, why didn't I just read the damn synopsis? So I'm going to do that right now. Perfect. Okay, here we go. As Michael and Robert, a gay couple in New York, prepare for Robert's departure for a two-year work assignment in Africa... Michael must face Robert's true motives for leaving while dealing with their circle of eccentric friends, including Nick, who is living with AIDS. I mean, look, we should have just done that at the beginning. That's a pretty solid synopsis, I think. It is. It's a little on the long side. Um, I And usually, like, with a synopsis, like, when you mention somebody by name, people don't know those characters' names. So you are usually told to, like, don't include actual proper names because that doesn't matter Mm. you could just say a gay couple living in new york must prepare for the departure of one of them for a two-year like that kind of thing okay anyway it's it's good it's very it's very detailed sometimes sometimes you need that (laughs) i don't know and actually what's funny about this film is that it's only takes place, Joe uh, confirmed it for us, it only takes place over, like, about a 24-hour period. Mm-hmm. But there actually are, like, several montages, <laughs> like, that kind of condensed time uh, throughout it. It's mostly, yeah. like, them getting ready for the party or getting ready to go somewhere or that kind of thing. So things that kind of just move it along a little bit. Nothing that's like really too instrumental in the storytelling of it, I guess, outside of like condensing time a little bit more than it's already been condensed. Yeah. I think they were, I think they were helpful just to move things along just for, it it is like a slice of this like day for all of these different characters. And so they're, they do it. Like, you get a lot of time spent with them in these different environments, like at the party, mm-hmm. when he's at Nick's. So, yeah, I think I think it was, you know, it's no blood sport. I mean, montage, we don't need but... to see everybody traveling. I mean, although we do a little bit. Like, we see there's, like, a brief moment, for instance, of, like, Michael. Well, they're having a conversation, so that's probably the, the reason why it's included. When Michael and Robert are walking to his boss's, like, brownstone. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, like, it's mostly, like, yeah, them getting ready to go to another location so that's kind of where that comes in but we didn't really go over his boss but i just wanted to say i didn't care for him yeah and we we never really got a chance to talk about it too much with joe either cecil yeah um is an interesting figure i don't know if he was meant to be a a mentor figure to robert i think he would like to think he is i think he thinks he is yeah yeah um it's an interest, and I mean, it shows like another type of relationship. He he's yeah, he's there to show that relationship he has with Robert, and possibly even more importantly, the relationship he has with his wife. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that, like, if you look, if you pull back a little bit, 
and look at these different individuals and also the generational differences. Yeah. Kind of that circles back to what we were talking about with Peter. Like Peter is mm. moving through the world in a very different way than Michael or Robert, and they themselves are moving through the world in a different way than Cecil. Yeah, I think that's I think so, a good point. So I think that's an int- like interesting juxtapositions yeah. uh, within this world. So Welcome to Juxtapose. <laughs> On that note, let's jump into it with our wonderful guest, Joe. Let's do it. And so we are so very thrilled to have with us today friend and amazing filmmaker, Joe Steiff. Joe, thank you for joining us. Welcome. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to spend some time with you. <laughs> Yay, Yay! We are, too. And this one, I'm I'm actually really excited to talk about this one because this film for a couple different reasons, really is a very different kind of film than we've covered before, especially from like the indie filmmaking standpoint. Um, and so I'm I'm just like stoked to jump in. So without further ado, as I normally do, my first question for you, Joe, is do you have a recollection of seeing this movie for the first time? And if so, what was your response to this movie? Wow. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's, a, that's amazing. Um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm trying to think, usually I'm so good at knowing exactly what theater I saw the movie in and stuff like that. Oh, um, wow. But, but in this case, I'm not entirely sure. I'm not entirely sure where I saw it first. I do okay. remember, I do remember being, kind of blown away by how mm. it kind of was different than any other representation of gay yep. male relationships that I had seen, you know, and, and, you know, there'd been that little burst of sort of a lot of gay films right at the beginning of the eighties, like the first few years. Um, but they tended to be a lot of, of, what I would consider sort of typical representations mm-hmm. and stuff. And, yep. and so, yeah, I think what stood out to me, I remember the two films I really remember seeing, and I have the feeling that maybe I saw this as part of the film series um, at Ohio university, because that's also where I saw desert hearts. And, okay. and those two films for me in the eighties, like just really stood out to me because they, they had a playfulness and sort of a, mm-hmm. a, a joy to them even mm-hmm. though they were tackling sometimes some pretty serious <laughs> um, subject matter. Yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, that is something that just off the bat really stood out to me about this film because, I mean, goodness, with most of the films that we've covered so far, we always kind of talk about, quote, like problematic mm-hmm. Um Things because they're 80s movies and yep. often there is that component to it. And so one thing that I think was in stark contrast with this film is especially with, you know, LGBT representation in films from the 80s. There's stereotypes. Yep. Yeah. There's jokes made mm-hmm. on behalf of that community. And so to just get to see representation that to me felt really authentic. Yeah. Um. And like you were saying, in terms of both just the lightheartedness aspects of just just life, just mm-hmm. life with a couple, a couple, though, that, 
you know, obviously there are issues at play yep. that are explored through the course of like, seems like it just takes place in a single day. It does. Yeah. It's basically yeah. just 24 hours kind of. Yeah. 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 And they, they don't sleep at all. No, that was. They don't. That was <laughs> They're tired. <laughs> if I had to say one thing, I was like, I am exhausted <laughs> just watching them not sleep. Like, um, it was hilarious. And sorry, I don't mean to go all over the place right off the jump, but no. um when they left the one party and then continued their night, I was like, what? Like, <laughs> I know. I know. I was like, and especially I was like, Robert, you were getting on a plane <laughs> to Africa. <laughs> in yeah, like right. just hours. He'll sleep, he'll sleep on the plane. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. That's kind of what I figured is he's like, oh yeah, I'll just sleep on the plane. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> I was just tired watching them. And it, I mean, it was hilarious to me because when, Michael, you know, meets up with Nick at the very end. He actually does say at one point, he's like, I've been awake for 24 hours. I'm like, you're saying that, but you're not acting like that. Like if I was awake for 24 hours, I would just be dead on my feet. But (laughs) That was, that was brutal. I I just, I wanted to piggyback really quick on what Anna was saying, as far as what we've, what we've noticed in, in going through a lot of these eighties movies is that they're certainly like a product of their time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this movie I thought was really interesting because on one hand, it, it definitely feels very much like an 80s movie, but it also feels like it was just way ahead of its yes. time yeah. in the way it portrayed a lot of these different issues. And that, that really struck me because seeing it for the first time in 2021 probably made it feel a little bit less remarkable mm-hmm. than it would have been seeing mm-hmm. it when it first debuted. Yeah. Because uh, I, yeah. I can't imagine that there were many things or many films that were, you know, covering these issues in mm-hmm. that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's interesting because I, you know, I was talking with someone not too long ago about sort of representation in, in terms of, of LGBT films. And, um, you know, I think, you know, I think the director, Bill Sherwood, the writer-director, I think the film grew out of some of his own frustrations as well with um, how, you know, the LGBTQ communities were being portrayed in film and particularly, I think, uh, gay men, you know, like I think mm-hmm. um, even even still, you know, but, but certainly in the 80s and before that, um, so many of the representations kind of fell into what I, I consider sort of two major categories. One is that somehow they're murderers mm-hmm. <laughs> or oh, violent mm-hmm. criminals um, or they're hustlers. Um, mm-hmm. And that seemed yep. to be the only representations we really got. There were there were a few others, you know, like there was Maurice and a few other films in the 80s that created a, a different a different portrayal, like another country. But those films always had this kind of heavy tragedy to them, this sort of, Mm -hmm. you know, like that things will never work out, you know, (laughs) for Mm -hmm. um, gay or lesbian um, couples in the, in the films as they were represented then. Um, And so parting glances. And I think, you know, um, again, you know, desert hearts, I think those two films felt like, Oh, these are real people. These are these, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, these are people I identify with. These are more hopeful kind of representations, mm-hmm. even though, you know, like obviously in the film Nick has AIDS and yeah, you know, but it's it's not treated as this 
this kind of heavy dramatic sort of moment or this this mm-hmm. tragedy it's um if anything he's one of the characters who's so full of life <laughs> in yes. the film um that you can't help but sort of love him <laughs> Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was telling Derek, I was like wanting to save it for the podcast, but also I had to express that. I mean, look, it's Steve Buscemi. And so he obviously has gone on to have this amazing career. And he's pretty good. He's pretty Mm -hmm. good. Mm -hmm. And it's really (laughs) special to get to see him so incredibly early in his career. But he already... I mean, I I don't want to be like hokey about it, but I really do think he has like a magnetism about him. Like I was fixated yeah. on on him every scene he was in. And I don't know. I mean, I think it is because he really did have an amazing performance in this movie. But mm-hmm. it's also because I'm looking at him through the lens of someone who has seen all of his other. Yes. Work, yeah, it is know? hard to parse that out. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at the guy from Armageddon. <laughs> <laughs> and Con Air, right? Exactly. <laughs> no, but he really, he really is an amazing actor. Yeah. I know those I'm, are I'm joking, but I mean, yes, no, yes. Yeah, no, he yeah. is a legit, really great actor. Uh, it's really interesting to see him so young. Yeah. He's like so young. He has yeah. great hair. Uh-huh. Great hair. He has great hair. Yes. <laughs> Uh, and I was telling Derek that, you know, it is hard to parse out how I feel about him because I just know now his his body of work over mm-hmm. the last like 35 years. But I personally, first of all, any scene with him and Michael. Oh, yeah. I love. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really it really hit me that moment where michael says to him like i love you and he's like pointing at him yeah like i'm getting choked up oh right i know now i know it's, yeah. it's <laughs> such a tender moment between the two of them and um i just think that buscemi elevates every scene that he's and i n- that is not to take away from the actor who plays michael but right. I feel Robert. like their scenes together. What's that? Or Robert. Or Robert. I mean, Robert. Yeah. Robert's a really interesting character too. We're gonna for sure get to him. But um, mm-hmm. I just think that the moments between Michael and Nick, I'm just captivated yeah. by by the dynamic of their relationship. Um, I'm curious from your standpoint. Like, so am I reading too much into this to say that you know? If things had gone a different way and Nick wasn't a, a terminally ill person in their in their world, that Michael would have maybe been with Nick instead of Robert. Like, is that what I'm sensing? That there really was more than friendship yeah, between them. I think it's I think it's really interesting. And there's I, you know, there's there's some assumptions I make from watching the film, and then it's been interesting because, you know, when you see a summary of the film, sometimes it draw some connections that I, I hadn't completely necessarily drawn, but um, I think it's clear, like there's that scene, it might be the first scene of them together when um, Nick is trying to get him to stay. And, you know, he's talking about playing cards or something like that. And in that scene, Michael pulls him over onto his lap and um, Nick puts his hand in front of his face and then says, I love you. He kind of whispers or he just mouths it. And so I think, I think the film definitely sets up that these are two people that are in love or that definitely love each other and that it, 
it potentially had this romantic possibility, um, but for whatever reason, didn't happen. And then I know that there's some summaries of the of the story, like when you when you see it, like in a movie guide or something, where mm-hmm. it'll say that they are ex boyfriends. And yeah, okay, I I didn't necessarily get the idea that they were. If they if they were ex boyfriends, it didn't seem like they had a very long relationship. Uh huh. But but you know, like Nick later talks on the stairway about first meeting Michael and mm-hmm. sort of like showing him um, sort of New York life and and things like that at that time. And um, so I feel like they definitely they had a they definitely had a connection. They had a friendship, and I think it it became for both of them love, but. Yeah, there kind of was this star-crossed quality to it, um, which I find even more interesting because at the end of the film, when Nick says, "Oh, we're not going to go to Europe. Let's go to Africa. Let's go see Robert," you know, and 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 so I feel like Nick kind of, no matter how he feels about Michael, maybe kind of feels like Michael needs someone different. I don't know if that makes any sense or not, but yeah, no. And you brought you brought up so many great points. I mean, first of all, I just wanted to touch on when you were uh, commenting on Nick, you know, saying "I love you" from behind his hand, mm-hmm. and those little moments. You know, I don't know if that came about from the direction of the film, the actor's choice. I don't mm-hmm. combination of the two, but I love those little moments because those to me feel so real oh yeah because you're so vulnerable with Mm -hmm. someone and and usually the way that somebody says i love you is not the real like sweeping i don't even know what to say like in most movies like it's done in such a dramatic way (laughs) and and it's like people don't really say it that way and when you're especially if you're just feeling so vulnerable about revealing yourself to someone you usually do say it in kind of like an awkward, not so. Yeah. I don't know. It just felt really real to it's me. It's not all Richard Gere in first night. Exactly. Right. right. <laughs> oh my god. Um, that was a pull. Um, <laughs> well, I so, think, oh, please go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, I was going to say, and I think that that's also why that moment you were talking about earlier, when Michael kind of says how he's feeling yeah. or indicates how he's feeling. Like that always makes me cheer up. It's such yep. a powerful moment, and it's it's really brief, but mm-hmm. it has all this impact. And it's and it's again, sort of. He can't quite say it. He said, "You know, Nick says, oh, you've been in love a lot of times,' and he's like, no, really, just once.' And then Nick's like, sort of, mm-hmm. and and he's going to Africa, and he's like, no, he's right here, you know. And mm-hmm. it's just, yep, it just feels like these real moments of, like you said, when people are awkward and they have these feelings and they don't know how to express them, how they sort of tumble out rather than being mm-hmm. these big declarations. <laughs> no, that that was really perfectly stated. That's exactly exactly how I felt about it. Yeah, it's, it is exactly like that. And I mean, so with this like kind of star-crossed quality of the relationships, I mean, I was curious your thoughts on the dynamic between Michael and Robert because, you know, Derek brought up a point saying that Robert felt less emotionally, like, clued, like, clued into his own emotions. Yeah. Like, he, like, Michael and Nick. Yeah. 
even with the awkwardness, feel more in touch mm-hmm. with their emotions than Robert does. And I, I, there was a part of me that felt really bad for Michael because, you know, I, I feel like that would be a really hard thing to hear your partner saying that they just they love you, but they need to get away from you. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> I love you. I, mean, I think we'll be together for 50 years, but I need a break now. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. 50 years starting six months from now. Yeah. Right. I'll be ready and, then. <laughs> and so I was thinking to myself, like, what is keeping Michael in this particular relationship? You know, it he just at different points, especially like right at the outset of the film, like you know, Robert keeps kind of enticing him to, you know, make love. And he seems like sad and kind of, you know, like not totally into it and even like steps away in the shower. And, and so I was just curious what your thoughts were on like how Michael feels in this relationship with Robert. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And I think it's, it's a little hard to, completely say with any assuredness because we're also looking at their last 24 hours yeah and so michael i think a lot of michael's reactions are shaped by his sadness and and anger that robert is leaving um even though clearly they've they've made the assumption that robert would be coming back and be coming back Mm -hmm. to the relationship at least initially until the confession in the in the taxi later but (laughs) um but i think you know i think yeah i think like one of the i think one of the most interesting moments for me is when nick calls robert a ken doll that he's Mm -hmm. you know and i think it's interesting because i think nick and michael are both very emotional people within the story and 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 in some ways that's sort of their bond you know that they they have they're they're able to express feelings in a certain way. I mean, mm-hmm. or they certainly feel them. Like we've talked about, like they they don't necessarily make declarations or anything. But um, I think Robert definitely is a little more remote and a mm-hmm. little colder. And I think it's interesting that I would say some of my readings of it, you know, and and again, I don't I don't know for sure, um, but I think that. Michael and Nick probably came to their understanding of their sexuality in a completely different way than Robert did mm. because we okay. meet Robert's ex-girlfriend. Yep. Um, who he actually confides in, you know, who yep. he actually has a close kind of friendship with. Um, and I think that, you know, Robert, Robert is a different character that reflects probably for the time and maybe even now still, you know, um, a certain type of gay man or a certain Mm -hmm. type of man who um, maybe isn't as free with his emotions and stuff. Mm -hmm. I think, interestingly, like, I feel like one of the things I appreciated was that there are these glimpses, though, of that he and Michael do have this playful sort of, you know, like the umbrella, you know, sort of battle and stuff like that, that they, their relationship has this quality and you kind of in those moments see like, oh, this is why they're together or this is, this is Mm -hmm. how they've made it work over time. 
but um but yeah robert definitely seems more i I hate to use the word cold but he just seems he's just more remote he's more protected Mm -hmm. Mm um yeah it seems like he has his guard up a little bit more and to be um, fair, we're we're getting a glimpse into the relationship in, during this last 24 hours before he's leaving. Yes. We're not really getting, you know, flashbacks of right. how they've interacted in the past. So, yeah. you know, with kind of the that more dramatic interaction towards the end when they're, you know, right before he leaves, that kind of made me think, well, possibly the way that he's been acting throughout the, you know, the first three quarters of the movie were more of a reflection of him getting ready for this, for this like significant change on his end too. Right. This, this travel. Well, um, I, yeah. yeah. Um, I think, you know, for me, the first time I saw the film, one of the moments that really stood out to me, which probably, probably says more about me at the time than, because I saw it when it, so I, I, I'm, I saw the film in 1986. Um, okay. So, but when he's talking up on the roof with his girlfriend and he says something yeah. about how you're with someone for six months and then sort of goes south a little bit or it doesn't feel as close. And so you break up with them and you start a new relationship. And then in six months, that relationship goes through the same phase. And then you realize that if you just stuck with the first person, you would have, you would have cycled through that and found mm-hmm. your connection again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, in that sense, oddly, though Robert's not the main character in the film, I think he's the one who maybe makes a certain gains a certain insight into mm-hmm. his own behavior and stuff. And I feel like that's sort of like one of those um, recognition moments, you know, for a character <laughs> when they kind of realize, oh, this is sort of what I'm doing right now. This is sort of and. Um, and so I think, you know, that that really stood out to me because it felt like a this is gonna sound really stupid, but it's it felt like a mature way of thinking about relationships. It no, it I think it it definitely is. It's it sets up this contradiction because he's he's got this awareness mm-hmm. and yet he's leaving. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Which then I think is interesting because he ultimately decides not to leave. I mean, you know, like yep. I remember being completely shocked when he when he yes. walked in the apartment at the end of the movie. I was like, what? <laughs> and that like I thought that that was such an interesting moment because is for for un- very understandable reasons as like kind of in a way mopey as Michael is be- because Robert is going to be leaving when he finally comes back. Michael is completely like he's like, oh, hey, you know, like, I mean, there's no like because he is now solely thinking about Nick. Right. And what he thinks Nick is about to do. Yeah. And so, you know, he does. And I did like the little moment where he does come back and kisses Robert before he like, no, I actually am happy that you're back, you know, like just kind of reassure. But I thought that was so interesting that you know, so much of Michael's journey through most of the film is like kind of coming to terms with the fact that Robert is leaving and why he's leaving. And then when he sees that Robert returns, it's not this like, like huge emotional, (laughs) what have you, you know, that he's back. He's like, oh no, I got to attend to Nick. And so I just thought that was really interesting. But the one, um, I mean, I I think all the the three, to me, the three main characters, Mm -hmm. Michael, uh, Robert and Nick, are each really 
fascinating in their own ways. And the the one moment that I really loved about um, Robert is when he does make the decision to call Nick. Yeah. And yes. before he yeah. leaves. Yeah. It, it's such an interesting scene for me because it to me gives this insight into Robert that I hadn't seen up until that point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't necessarily to me strike like I don't think he's like jealous. I, I didn't get the sense that he was in any way like jealous of the relationship between Michael and Nick. He just was kind of like he's your friend. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not like he just wasn't as invested in Nick or what he was going through. Yeah. And so for him to call him and he doesn't really get too deep. It's not really in his nature to, from what I had seen up to that point, to really get too emotional with Nick. Mm-hmm. But I just, I just really liked that he reached out in the way that he could mm-hmm. to say, like, because I think it was a big deal for him to yeah. call Nick. There, yeah. there was a, um, I mean, I, I got an interesting sense from him during that last conversation. Well, not the last, but the the conversation with Mike before he was supposed to leave where he was talking about Nick and kind of blaming some, blaming some blame sure. on him. And yeah. I don't know to what extent that, that sensibility affected his relationship with, with that's Nick. a good point. Yeah. That's no, I think, point. yeah, I think it's, it's interesting because there, there, there is definitely sort of a triangle going on mm-hmm. there in terms of, of dynamics and, yeah, I, I find it really interesting in that in that cab ride when he says, you know, you always come back really mean when you see Nick. Mm, um, yeah. And so I think that there's, yeah, I think there's that level of of sort of dynamic going on. I also think, which I find really ironic because he, you know, Robert works for a health organization. He's going to Africa, though they never state it. Sort of the assumption would be. He's probably going in some way or another to address AIDS uh, or address the AIDS crisis there. And so I think that they also set up this idea that a lot of people sort of avoid Nick um, because he has AIDS. So like the people at the party who are like, oh, how's how's Nick? And out of all the people that Michael talks to at the party, Joan is the only one who's gone to visit Nick. She's the only one who says, oh, yeah, I I just was there a week ago or whatever. and so it feels a little bit like some of the characters, and I, I think there might be a little bit of this with Robert as well, though it has those other layers, is, is just not knowing how to be around someone who has mm-hmm. AIDS or feeling, mm-hmm. feeling uncomfortable, like somehow you wouldn't know what to say or, or how you should act or things like that. Um, Which what I appreciated about that is that it, again, felt really rooted in Mm -hmm. like for better or for worse Mm -hmm. it felt rooted in the reality of how people were responding to absolutely yeah Yeah. absolutely exactly yeah and and again this like sense that not that anyone deserved anything but the fact that there seemed to be this well this happened to you because you Mm -hmm. you did something to deserve it or i think that's the way people protect themselves right oh yeah to say well you must have done something to and i i wouldn't do that you know so like i think there's there's just a lot of fear around it and that's what people do to protect themselves that other character douglas i think 
mm-hmm. talking. Was he about the wealthy the one? The wealthy yeah, one? Yeah. Okay. The, oh the yeah. Cranked, I guess, at one point, talking about how like he had committed the cardinal sin of being fat. Mm-hmm. I think oh. that's <laughs> yeah. that's why he didn't get the plague. I think is how he right. Oh, yeah, he actually yeah. yeah. When it's it's interesting because I think it is very much about fear in the sense of like the way the way I often think about it. And and during the eighties, I guess maybe I <laughs> I I don't think you know this about me, Anna, but I was a social worker before I was a filmmaker, and during the eighties. Um, I actually was working with HIV and AIDS, uh, HIV prevention and AIDS sort of services. And, um, one of the, one of the ways we would sort of try to help people understand is that if, if you, if there's something that sort of feels uncontrollable, like out of control, you know, like you can't control it, then you start looking for ways to say how you are in control and it wouldn't happen to you. Um, And I think that, you know, like, it's interesting. I evidently Sherwood started writing this in 1983. Um, Oh, okay. And then it was actually shot in 1984 and then obviously released in, in, uh, or it was shot, yeah, I think in 84, a little bit in 85 and then released uh, in 86, but it definitely, you know, like if we think about it, um, AIDS really wasn't in public conversation until 1985 with Mm -hmm. Rock Hudson. And so, um, you know, like a lot, I, I mean, I can remember first hearing about AIDS when it was called grid, um, a gay related immune deficiency. That was like, Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and that was like in 83, probably. And, and it was only in the gay papers where it was starting to sort of crop up of like, Oh, there's a strange illness. Um, it was primarily in New York initially. And then I think Los Angeles, you know, so there was, you know, there was this kind of creeping awareness of it. And then I think Mm -hmm. by, um, 84, um, to 85, I think a lot of, um, people in the LGBTQ communities, <clears throat> a lot of people, not necessarily everyone had become very aware of it in a variety of ways, mm-hmm. either because they knew people or mm-hmm. from their own fear of hearing about it or stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I, again, I think it's kind of amazing that this film was made so early. Yep. Um, and yet it's probably one of the, the more authentic depictions and sort Mm -hmm. of straightforward depictions like, um, which, yeah, which I I just think is a credit to, to Bill Sherwood. And it's, this ties back to something you were raising in a, I mean, everything supposedly, and you know, you know, there's always with time people re call things differently and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But supposedly there was no, uh, no improv, uh, improvisation on set. Mm. Supposedly this okay. was all Sherwood's vision. Uh, okay. Um, and again, you know, that's, that's hard to know for sure because you sure. know how film sets work, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, like no matter how much stuff is scripted or the director's guiding, the actors are still contributing and, and, sure. you know, bringing things to it. So, um, that's that's interesting. I mean, that, that, there were definitely parts of that party that seemed like <laughs> off the cuff. <laughs> <laughs> the dance sequence. Oh and my the, God. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, I thought that was interesting because I was like this. I'm, I feel like I'm getting a lot of different insights into, you know, it, it, this seems like very autobiographical. Mm-hmm. Um, to Sherwood's uh, experience and, and life. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I just thought that, yeah, the party scene was really interesting just with like the host of characters oh, that yeah. you're seeing. Yeah. About the guy that showed up looking for a wife that then <laughs> found the German yeah, piano player. Yeah, I didn't players. understand that either. And then the poor <laughs> piano player, like I kind of loved him, but I kind of hated him. Oh, yeah. Like, Simultaneously <laughs> being held at knife point while his wife was, that cheating was on him. <laughs> Oh my gosh, yeah. He had quite a night. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just want to, before I, I forgot, I just wanted to say that it it really breaks my heart that we lost Sherwood so early. Oh, yeah. Because he was only 37 years old when he passed. Yep. And this film, you know, I had read that, you know, he had done some shorts. Yep. But this was his only feature. Yeah. And the quality of work and storytelling just it makes me so sad that we didn't get the chance to see more from him um especially given how just amazing this film is in the regard of showing an authenticity to this community that seems to be largely absent um for actually quite a while i think i mean it's not yeah like it it, it's only been very recently that we see anything resembling like authentic representation that isn't mired in like stereotype yeah. and camp. And, mm-hmm. um, and so I was just like, man, Oh, that breaks my heart that we didn't get to see more from him. Um, so he just like, I guess for, for what it's worth, even in itself, this being his one feature project, what, a, what a legacy to, yeah. to leave behind. So well, yeah, and the movie has, in particular, obtained, you know, it, it's it's well received, acclaimed, and it's gone through yes. like a restorative yes. process, I believe, right? Yep, it has. Yeah, I mean, it's we unfortunately cons- did not. We didn't see the restored version. <laughs> I don't yeah, think we no, saw the restored think, version. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's like it's considered one of the landmark, you know, gay films of the 20th century, and I think mm-hmm. it isn't. It, it's interesting to hear, sort of like. Um, your your response, Derek. You know, of of like seeing it here in 2021, because like I hadn't seen it in quite a while, and so I watched it, you know, this past week again, and I was like, wow, this really holds up well. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's definitely, yeah. you know, like you said, it's definitely in certain ways a product of its time, but it also, in terms of sort of the range of characters it presents, mm-hmm. the range of people and the types of relationships and dynamics it's like um yeah it feels really present (laughs) showing i mean showing the intimacy between the characters Mm -hmm. is something in particular where we're again now watching it in 2021 i it's not it's not particularly like shocking because i know that these these two men are in a relationship Mm -hmm. that's makes yeah, that that's totally fine. But I can imagine in in the eighties that probably isn't something that you would see as often. Mm-hmm. In right. Something. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and especially uh, a a more or less functional relationship. Yes, you know, like, exactly. Like you might see relationships, but they'd be highly dysfunctional. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. and you wouldn't see any happiness, or you'd see mm-hmm. very little happiness. And so, 
yeah, to me, this was this was kind of earth shattering, you know, when it, exactly. when it appeared. And the dysfunction was a product of almost like, we'll see this. You can't really have. Well, if you're going to have a movie, you have to have some kind of conflict. Right, <laughs> like, right. I mean, there has to be yeah, something that's yeah. going on. So that that conflict between them isn't a condemnation of the relationship as much as like, well, there's got to be something that it's we as viewers human. need to yeah. be invested in. You know, it's there's got to like, be something going on between them. So like regular human issues. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious, Joe. How did you respond to the character of Joan? And because she's, I mean, probably outside of Buscemi. Yeah. Um, she's in terms probably of, best known. Exactly. Exactly. Um, probably most people know her. Kathy Kenny, right? Right. Am I saying her? Yeah. Yeah. Um, probably most people, I would guess, know her from the Drew Carey Carrie. show. Yeah. Yeah. She was on that for quite a while. Um, and I believe this was like her film debut. So that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I always think of her from Arachnophobia. Oh, do you? Okay. <laughs> All right. I, mean, I, I, know she's in I it, think of her more like from her TV work. Yeah, um, definitely me yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. But she is such an interesting character in this because you you get just this glimpse of her right smack dab in the middle of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah. she and she plays like a pretty significant part throughout the the middle section of the film. Yeah. Yeah. And so just her dynamic with Michael. And just her presence in this group of friends. Like, how did you respond? Because she's probably outside of Michael, Robert, and Nick, I would say the fourth Mm -hmm. most prominent character. Yeah, because she does really, like you said, she figures so prominently in that middle section of the film, Mm -hmm. like of the party. Um, And yeah, and I, you know, I think the party in general, like her apartment or her loft and, and the party we do see so many different types of people and so many types of interactions. And, and what I, what I kind of loved about that was how it was like, um, it was straight. It was exactly. It was, you know, it was like all different kinds of people at this party and they all, um, they all shared a certain kind of, of camaraderie, you know, like mm-hmm. obviously there were small conflicts within it. Like you would expect in any group of, mm-hmm. of, of loosely assembled friends. Um, and definitely, you know, some people had closer friendships than others. I think the other moment that really stood out to me, and I think I think of the, of Joan in some ways, that's interesting. I think, I think of her presence in the film in some ways where the film starts maybe talking a little bit more overtly about art or about the process of creating art because i love that moment when they're looking at the the postcard of the painting and she says there's more painting going on in this one section than you know like all the galleries (laughs) i love that line i do too i just um like it and, and you know the fact that nick is a rock musician or, you know, has a music mm-hmm. video. The, mm-hmm. we, we're only in it for the drugs. Um, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> which is very catchy. I, I, like, <laughs> I want to hear the rest of the song. Um, but, um, you know, and, the, and, you know, like the German couple who are doing sort of the performance art piano. Yes. Very thing. avant-garde. Yeah. yeah. The German yeah. couple. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, 
Yeah, and I, I, you know, I think that 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 party because it has such a range of people in it, but a lot of them are artists. I think it's in some ways it's sort of a, a little bit of a commentary on the art world during mm-hmm. that period, um, and you know, like definitely for me, one of the moments that was in some ways most jarring was, you know, when Dieter, I think it's, what, what is his name? I'm trying to remember, but the German piano player. Is it um, Klaus? Oh, Klaus. It's yes. Gotta Klaus. Klaus. It's gotta be Klaus. 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 Yeah. When he asked Nick to be in an exhibition yeah. and he wants to, he wants to create this exhibition where it's all, real people, but people with terminal illness, because he thinks there's going to be this intensity, you know, to the art piece because all these people are dying. And, um, and to me, it was like an interesting kind of observation about in the mid eighties, um, about the kinds and, and on past that point, the kinds of representations that we were starting to see about AIDS in artwork like films but mm-hmm. but in other artwork as well and sort of almost a, almost kind of a commentary on on um using aids in an exploitative way yeah. um yes. to create art um which i think is you know one of the remarkable things about sherwood's film is that while age is is definitely present in the film it's not it doesn't feel exploited and i think mm-hmm. it's it's again because everything is so rooted in the characters, you know, and and um, so it's just it's sort of another fact of life for these people mm-hmm. um, at the party. But yeah, the party is such a wild, <laughs> wild <laughs> place. Um, I gotta say, one of my favorite lines was when the one guest was like, "Remember when everybody was ugly?" Terry. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. I just well, love that so much. <laughs> he, in particular, he was really upset about how attractive Pete was. Yes. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. Which, uh-huh. Okay, if we can... Well, okay. I want to get yeah. to Peter because I think he's a really interesting part of this film. And But before we do, I just wanted to say that I completely agree. I mean, I was, for one, really annoyed with Klaus for, you know, just... I'm already so, so invested in Nick. And I mean, mm-hmm. Nick handles it like a champ. I mean, he, yes. he almost knifes him in the yeah. face. <laughs> oh, he handles it very well. <laughs> so, you know, he can hold his own. Um, mm-hmm. But I was just so, so frustrated. But you do, I, I do think that that party in a really accurate way shows all these different types of artistic types. And mm-hmm. you have the Klauses. Um, yes, and the Nadas. And, and the Nadas. And the, exactly, exactly. And then I really love, though, especially with the character of Joan, I think there's a moment where Michael finds her and he's like, what are you doing? And she's like, working. And then she uh-huh. says they raised the rent again. Yes. And yes. just those little moments, again, I was so impressed by how rooted they were because like for an artistic community you're you and especially one in new york city mm-hmm. you're always thinking about money how am i going yes. to pay my rent yeah. um the frustrations that joan expressed in terms mm-hmm. of like not being able to make a living doing the things she loves to do 
And yeah. I just thought that those little moments, like it's just more like, you, you know, it's not like it's some kind of part of the story that's thrown in your face. It's just another realistic aspect of this community. All the little things that held grounded in reality. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's, yeah. A, that's a really good point because as you were saying that, I was thinking about the fact, okay, so so Michael is basically a writer mm-hmm. um, who's kind of trying to make his living as an editor to just yeah. pay bills, but he really wants to be a writer. Um, you've got Joan, who's a painter and, you know, has been, from from the dialogue we get, obviously working at it for a while in New York and then sort of the frustration with the fact that this German couple have been there for just a few months and already have their own gallery show mm-hmm. and stuff like that. I mean, um, look, those Germans were dynamic. I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, yeah, it's interesting because a lot of the characters other than, than Robert in, and, and a couple of others, but a lot of the characters are, are sort of artist types. And yet oh. other than the German couple, the people that we're meant to identify with, none of them feel pretentious as, as not artists. at all. Yep. They're very rooted. I think you're yep. right. They're, they're, they're working, they're working artists. They, you know, they're people trying to make a living at it. Um, yeah. That felt really just real to me. Yeah. So I yeah. appreciated that. Yeah. So with Peter, so Peter is this very cute Peter's young pretty guy. Hot and he knows it. Yeah, he's pretty hot and he knows it. <laughs> right. He's, yeah, he's not shy about telling people how attractive <laughs> he is. <laughs> Talks about everybody hitting on him wherever he goes. Uh-huh. Um, I was curious what your thoughts were about the dynamic between him and Michael. Because, I mean, okay, not to ask you a leading question, but I'll kind of give you how I yeah. took away what, what. So it didn't seem like they knew each other really well. You know, they, mm-hmm. it seemed like there was kind of maybe an attraction between them. But then the reason why I was like, well, maybe I'm wrong about what I thought their relationship was because at the end, when Peter's in the stairwell with Nick, he talks about Michael in a like really kind of emotional way about what he wants their relationship to be. Like, that mm-hmm. I, I don't know. So am I misinterpreting how well they knew each other? I I don't think you are. I think okay. what what we kind of know is, you know, basically that he works at the record store mm-hmm. um, where Michael is buying basically these operas and classical music for Nick to yeah. listen to. So he's, he's it seems like he's in some ways trying to expand Nick's musical taste yeah. or else <laughs> – you know, like support a different uh, musical taste than than Nick's band, but um, but it's interesting because yeah, you know, in that in the stairwell when he's talking and he says, "I love Michael," yeah. and it makes me think again. Like I think it's a just in the way we were talking about Robert being sort of a variation of a gay man, you know, like kind of representation mm-hmm. of gay man. I think this is another variation of like. This young kid who who really probably hasn't had a lot of relationships yet and has this fantasy of sort of what what love would be or what a relationship would be. And he's mm-hmm. kind of picked Michael as the the object of that fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, you know, I definitely, you know, there's obviously a little bit of a flirtation that goes on with them, though it seems more on Pete's part mm-hmm. than, than Michael's. Yeah. You know, Michael 
always treated in sort of a good natured way, but um I get the sense that Michael's like, Yeah, you're cute, but you're just way too young. <laughs> like, right, right, right. <laughs> well, and Peter even says like the fact that he's kind of standoffish about it is what in part Right is, is exactly attractive. Yeah. <laughs> the one guy who's not into yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when it 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 definitely makes me wonder, and it's I don't think there's any answer to it in the film. It, I know in some ways I always kind of wonder when I when I see Pete in the film whether he's supposed to be sort of a younger version of Nick, mm. whether because his energy uh, and his his kind of yeah I guess his energy they also have a similar haircut. Um, yep, they sure do. The, it it makes me think like oh maybe he's a little bit what Nick was like, which would explain why Michael might be nice to him you yeah. know at the record yeah. store and stuff like that um but it's interesting because you know like in some ways then he asked nick to be sort of his to take him under his wing and show him new york in the way that he had with michael mm-hmm. so then he sort of positions himself like another michael you know so mm-hmm. it's it's but i think maybe in some ways all of these kind of possibilities or layers are what what is so brilliant about the film. Absolutely agree. Yeah. Yeah. No, again, I just think that you get all these very distinct characters, but there's something about it that just like makes so much sense to me that like, yeah, Mm -hmm. in like your community of friends and acquaintances, you're going to have all these different types of people where they connect on some levels, they don't connect on other levels. And that's just how groups of friends are for so just getting a snapshot of their lives in this 24 hour period. And for most of them, much less than that, it was really effective in yep. letting you kind of get a sense of, of who the people were. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was really successful as far as that goes. Mm-hmm. When I, I was oh, just flashing as you folks were saying that too, of like, you know, like I think that it's, it's a reflection, but also in some ways, a model for the way in which people with all different kinds of values, but um, orientation and things like that can actually be friends and yes. come together. And I think that, you know, films before the eighties to varying degrees, oftentimes the LGBTQ characters were often very isolated mm-hmm. um, or sort of ostracized by other people around them and and here's a film where like even again even though there's like little um conflicts among characters you know like some of the secondary characters and stuff like that ultimately all these people interact with each other and and are very comfortable being themselves Mm -hmm. around each other which i find you know like like i i kind of love the ex-girlfriend and her husband you know Mm -hmm. because they're just sort of okay <laughs> you know mm-hmm. like we're here at this party and there's all of these different people here you know um i agree i i loved all that inclusion especially with the character of joan i don't mm-hmm. think she necessarily takes away from the main storylines of Mm-mm. you know robert michael and nick but i think her inclusion is important because of yeah. what you were just saying um, in terms of people coming from different backgrounds and having different orientations, just all being friends and all yeah. just being in each other's lives. Uh, yeah, just the normalcy of it, just the everydayness of it. Not something you would see in a lot of 1980s cinema. Exactly. Yeah. No. Yep. 
No. Um, yeah, even in even in mainstream cinema, you didn't necessarily see that kind of yeah. of generosity and inclusivity of of like groups of people. All right. So, Joe, the one thing I wanted to ask you about, because I will say that I wasn't totally clear on the intention, was those moments when Michael, it seemed like he was daydreaming, but was he daydreaming or was he actually recalling past memories with Nick? Like when they have kind of the Native American gear on yeah, and they're at the beach. Beach, right. Yeah, my my sense of it. And it's 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 kind of referenced a couple times, just really fleetingly in the dialogue. Is that I believe it's a memory, okay? Um, and it's like that he and Nick have sort of crashed <laughs> the guy's, you know, um, private beach house. Yes. And, okay. And so it's again, I think it's another it's another representation of of a of a particular aspect of the community, and and. It's interesting because I would say that one is played a little more for comedic effect Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, than, say, the other representations in the film. Um, But, yeah, I I interpret it as a memory. And we sort of get those flashes of the train ride out. And Well, it's interesting because some stuff seems like it might be flash forward earlier in the film. Yeah. Um, But um, ultimately where the film ends up is on that same beach, basically. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I saw it as a memory. As okay. A, yeah. That, that clocks. I mean, at first when they were more of these like really brief moments, I thought he was maybe daydreaming something. Yes. But then when they had the more extended, like kind of last memory recall or flashback mm-hmm. where now they are at D- Douglas? Douglas. Yeah. yeah. Douglas's yeah, house. Douglas's house. And yeah. they, they, yeah, break up or do whatever they do. Then I was like, okay, this seems more like a memory to me. So, mm-hmm. okay. But then it's interesting because I think, I think Sherwood makes an in- a couple of inter- interesting choices because he has that, but then also I got to say one of my favorite moments in the whole movie is when Nick has like what appears to be a hallucination. Oh yeah. Yes. And he's visited by, it appears to be somebody in their circle of friends who has already passed away. Mm -hmm. And cause he says like heaven is so boring. (laughs) Yes. Um, Which was hilarious to me. Cause I was like, Oh, Heather's totally stole that line because one of the Heathers actually <laughs> says the exact same thing. That's um, funny. Wow. But, uh, and I just, so I thought that those were in, interesting filmmaking choices to include, because we, we've been talking all this time about how rooted this film is. But then you do have kind of these more. It got out there. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I liked it, um, and especially that hallucination or whatever you want to call it. If maybe, maybe he really was visited by a friend, um, but how did you take to those moments? Yeah, it's interesting because I, I think they do they do stand out. And I think I again I remember watching the film, you know, in the theater the first time, and um, I was really struck by the the hallucination of the night, um, mm-hmm. and you know, I think. It is, it's the two sequences you're talking about, you know, the flashback and that, that hallucination are the places where the film definitely does take on sort of a different style. Yeah. Um, 
I, I have more trouble reconciling the flex flashback in terms of style. I think that the hallucination, for me, it sort of made sense because, you know, one of the symptoms of AIDS, particularly, you know, at that time when there was no treatment or anything for it, um, or very little could, you know, was yeah. we were just on the threshold of sort of figuring out how to address some of those issues. Um, you know, one of the symptoms for some people was dementia. Mm. Um, and so I kind of saw it as potentially rooted into Nick's character as maybe partly symptom of, of, you know, the virus itself, but it also worked for me sort of at that, that other level that, you know, of, of, you know, like the, the fact that the the ghost or the knight, you know, initially says repent, and it's sort of that classic sort of um, cartoon ghost sort of voice, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. And then Nick is like, "No, I'm not going to repent." Do and you, then, yeah, that's so funny. Did you feel like the knight was? Um, I I got the sense that they were. He was like joking with him, but did you did that come across as more sincere to you when he was saying repent? I think, well, when you first experience it and you don't know where the scene is going, sure, I, it, it definitely feels, it doesn't quite feel, you know, something's not right with it, yeah. you know, but I think you're right. I think it is sort of, yeah, the ghost trying to have a, a little bit of fun. And then, you know, the fact that he says, yeah, heaven is boring, yeah. you know, try, don't rush to get here. <laughs> you know? Yeah, like, yeah. It was interesting because there's like not a lot of context for who this person is supposed to be. Not a bit, but- <laughs> no. <laughs> so um, it, it it's just me completely reading into some of those lines. Um, yeah. But it seemed like okay, I think this is someone Nick knows, but he is dressed up in this like night gear. And like, it's just, it was very bombastic, but, but a fun moment. I liked it. Yeah. Well, it was interesting because, you know, like I think it may have just been watching it this past week where I suddenly realized earlier in the film, Nick is looking at the, um, Mm, the vinyl. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's an image of a night uh, the hand-drawn image. And so I was like, oh, this is where, this is what's informing Nick's hallucination in some ways. Is, that checks, yeah. Um, I yeah. I was, I was struggling trying to figure out what he was looking at. I just knew that he was having... A like, moment. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So it's, so I feel like, again, there's sort of this... Uh, foreshadowing isn't quite the right word, but there is this link mm-hmm. that's kind of established mm-hmm. earlier mm-hmm. that seems to be the motivation for why he would see his friend as a knight. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, it seems like it's someone he definitely knows well, you know, um, but we don't know as an right. audience, you know, we only, we only know that he knows him because of his reaction to him and mm-hmm. he calls him by name. Um, but yeah. And I think that, I was trying to think if there were, you know, like there's definitely some other films or filmmakers. I was trying to think if there were other films that sort of inserted that sort of mm-hmm. break <laughs> sort mm-hmm. of in style, yeah. uh, particularly among queer cinema. But at the time, yeah, I can't think of, I can't think of any. And, and it's interesting because they're kind of motivated by classic Hollywood traditions of like hallucination and flashback. 
but they're but they are highly stylized like the whole use mm-hmm. of the fluorescent light mm-hmm. the night. Yep. um and then yeah the flashback is is almost played for comedy um yes. and and sort of a silent movie feel yeah <laughs> yeah it had like I don't know if this is gonna check out, but like kind of a Benny Hill oh kind of yes. feeling to it. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I totally get that. I totally get that. Um, yeah, so I think they're they're really interesting stylistic sort of punctuations to the film. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, again, like I said, I have I have more trouble kind of reconciling the flashback its style, uh, even though. Um, it's interesting because it sort of establishes the beach that's going to be where the final scene takes place. Absolutely, yeah. Um, but yeah, I remember being really struck by the hallucination. Like mm-hmm. I found it eerie in a certain way, but but also kind of beautiful. Yes, totally, totally agree. I mean, I just want to take a moment to say that, you know, this was a first viewing for both Derek and myself. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to say thank you because this is something that like we really briefly touched on in the last episode, but one of the unexpected and really awesome things about doing this podcast is on the rare occasion, because most of the films we're somewhat familiar with, sure. but on the occasion that we're not, we and the fact that you know to have you say here's a film that you know means something to me and i'd like to talk about it like between getting to see a film for the first time and then getting to speak to somebody who has a love for that film is really really fun and fascinating to kind of dive into it and so I really love that I finally got the chance to experience this film. I didn't I'm even so know that this film existed. And like some of the films that we've seen that I hadn't seen before, I at least knew of them. Mm-hmm. But this mm-hmm. was just a complete um, under the radar surprise. Mm-hmm. But I really, mm-hmm. really enjoyed it. And I'm so glad that you that you recommended it. For yeah, this so glad. And this has been just a tremendous conversation. Uh I've enjoyed it so much. Me too. <laughs> oh, good. That's the Me goal. <laughs> yeah. And, as you know, we very often uh, have people on the show who have projects of their own going on. And so if uh, we would love for you to talk about, because I, I mean, spoiler, I kind of know <laughs> of, <laughs> of this awesome project that you have in your life right now. So if you wanted to share with our listeners, Joe, what you have going on. Yeah. So, um, no, that's, that's great. And I love, you know, like, even though you and I haven't talked like, like verbally in a long time, like it's been so nice to be able to stay up with each other on Facebook and stuff. Um, I know, you know, there's like the older side of Facebook, but I really love, love that I've been able to see just how tremendously your film has been doing. And it's just really cool to see its journey. Well, thank you. Yeah, so so the film um, that I have out currently is called Jesse James, and it's a twenty minutes film. Um, it's um, currently it's like right now as we're we're talking, it's showing in Ecuador for this week That's in so cool. eight different cities. Um, it's going to be coming up in December 
Uh, it's going to show in Italy and Serbia, um, somewhere else that I'm I'm spacing on. Um, <laughs> Tremendous! That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's it's done really well. Like one of my actors jokingly calls it the little film that could. Um, <laughs> but um, but I think you know it's it's interesting to be talking about Sherwood. Um, because I admire his film so much. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think, you know, Jesse James is, is definitely a, a totally different sort of film, but it, it does, it does resonate in some ways with some of the same things where, mm-hmm. you know, like, um, trying, trying to show different representations yeah. of LGBT life and, um, you know, acknowledging that there's sometimes difficulties or that there are challenges in that life, but um, but also trying to show in a different way. Like one of one of the people who saw it recently commented on the fact that they really appreciated that it looked like it was taking place in a working class neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that it wasn't another movie about wealthy mm-hmm. <laughs> gay men or something like that. Um, it's definitely, you know, I think it's. It's interesting, you know, one of the one of the challenges with it is we debated a lot about some of the language in the film and whether it would be okay. triggering or not because it's uh. you know, it's a film about domestic violence, so it's um there's some pretty harsh language in it and things and you know, trying to figure out that line of of um being authentic but at the same time trying not to be sort of uh exploitative about it and mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure that we got it completely right. I think with every film, I, I'm, I'm sure you know this too, you know, like with every film, you always see the things in hindsight you would do differently or you sure. would rethink maybe and stuff like that. But, but I'm glad the film is finally out in the world. It took it, it took it a long time. <laughs> yeah. Well, obviously, I mean, you talking about kind of walking that line, it, to me, seems like you did that very well because it is getting such a tremendous reception. Um, You know, I have seen for myself just all these different, um, you know, selections that it it has been made on its behalf for different festivals. So that's awesome. And it's really cool to hear that, you know, you are putting out into the world yet a different type of way of looking at representation and a different type of individual within the LGBTQ community. And that's, I mean, people are, are attracted to that. So, and it, I'm just so happy for you. So congratulations on all the, and so it seems like right now it's in the film festival circuit. Yes. So if somebody wanted to see it, um, is there anything online where they might be able to see where it's playing or anything of that nature? Or if you just wanted to say the name of some of the festivals that it might be playing in right now? Um, so basically, you know, if someone wanted to kind of track where it's playing, um, the best place is probably uh, the Facebook page, which okay. is Invisibility Productions LLC uh, on Facebook. Um and I post, you know, what festivals it's showing at on there pretty regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, it's about to finish. Like, it's interesting. I kind of thought its screenings would end about now. And I know you were thinking some, something similar with your film as well. And, and also congratulations to you oh, on all the reception you. for your film. Um, 
but um, a couple of the festivals that it got accepted in have actually postponed their screenings till spring. So it's actually going to show a few more times in the spring as well. Um, it's been a crazy year, huh? For it has <laughs> been, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's definitely right now. If if someone really wanted to see it, it's part of uh, in London. There's an organization called Queer Bee, all one word: Q U E E R B E E. Oh, okay. Um, and um, they selected it as part of their website, so it's actually showing there. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, so it's you know we're starting to look at like where will it exist after after yeah. the festivals. Yep. Well, Joe, thank you again so much for being on the show. We just had such a wonderful time chatting <laughs> this has with been you. Incredible. Thank yeah. You. Yeah. This has been a lot of fun. I loved it. Oh, Joe, thank you so much for your time. You are just such a pleasure to have, and uh, I loved every minute of our conversation with you. And thank you again for recommending the film so that we have the chance to see something that I probably otherwise would not have seen and getting a chance to talk about it with someone Mm -hmm. where it's, you know, got this uh, special place for them. Mm -hmm. So thank you. All right. Derek? Yes. Would you watch this film again? I would implore you to ask me that question again once the fully restored version (laughs) is available. Because I might. You know what I wish? I mean, we're talking like 13 or 14 years removed. I wish that they would do something again like they did at, you said it was UCLA, right? Yeah. Because I think that would have been a really cool experience because my guess is that they did a Q&A with the cast. They did. And... I think that would have been so fascinating to listen to them talk about their experience on the film and potentially like their relationship with Sherwood, how that even happened with them getting cast in the film. Yeah, that would have been amazing. I think that, I mean, here's the thing is that, you know, we both have mentioned at this point that this movie was new to us. I, I, I was, I was aware of the film, like I knew of the film's existence, but like, I've never seen it play on television I've I don't never think you, yeah. Well, that's the thing is that it needs to have more exposure. I mean, I'm very happy that it was part of this like Outfest restoration project. Uh it seems like in retrospect it is getting more notice. I think but... it, it it has received I mean, it's it's acclaimed and it definitely has a special place, but I don't mm-hmm. think it has um it's not something that the masses right have really seen like by evidenced by like I didn't know it existed. Yeah. When we looked over possible films to cover mm-hmm. and this was one of the titles, we you know, we looked into what it was about and thought, oh, okay. I mean, and we're kind of an example of well, Steve Buscemi's in it. It's what's well, Yeah. Yeah. I wanna I wanna see what this is about. But it just doesn't have much exposure, the exposure exactly. that it probably deserves. Yeah. Totally agree. And yeah, I just uh, putting it out there. If anybody has any (laughs) influence over this, it should have another public showing where the cast and maybe crew members, whoever is, you know, still connected to the film. Yeah. uh, You can can see it on, I think you can rent it on Amazon Prime or you need a subscription to a particular service. Yeah. And then Tubi is how we watched it. And that's free. So you can just say YouTube. It's on YouTube. <laughs> it is. I mean, that's like uh, 
it, it's a likely copyright violation of of some sort but the full film is available on youtube so there you go yeah uh as far as call to action this is an interesting one i mean i i think that you can go two different ways with it oh i think that if we're you know as we've said steve buscemi is probably like he's i can't really say like breakout star because this was not his breakout role yeah but he is the one who has become most notable in terms of his professional career since this he's film. the most recognizable yeah so unless I, you watch a lot of soaps <laughs> exactly <laughs> so i'd be curious what was somebody's first exposure to buscemi because i'm curious if anybody oh, yeah. that's a good one was um clocking his career like before Reservoir Dogs, like if they saw something pre, like him, his ascension. Yeah. <laughs> um, Buscemi ascension. Exactly. So so I think that that would be an interesting question to see like what people's responses are. On a similar note, you know, like we said, this is probably far, far, far and away the most indie film that we've covered so far. Don't you think? I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's truly the definition of independent. Yeah. Like, not independent in the way that, like, oh, this little film called Dead Poets Society or whatever. Like, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. So I'm just curious if there are other, like, true indie films out there that people love. And from that, they also saw, like, somebody who was just, like, very, very started their career but went on to become a huge star. I mean, I have one. Okay. Kind of for that. What? Uh, Swingers. Okay, so you're talking about Vince Vaughn and um, what's his face? Yeah, what, from that, that guy that's like uh, responsible for Fav- fixing Star Wars. Yeah, <laughs> John Favreau. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> he went from being well, Mikey to fixing Star were Wars. Were they really though? Like, okay, I'm not so familiar with that film that I don't know where they were in their careers prior to it. Yeah, I I mean, that's fair. I think that was kind of a starting point for, for Favreau. It feels like it, but that I'd have to do a little bit more research to find out. And that was probably a different budget. They had different technology to do that. But I know it was low budget enough to where some of the scenes they just filmed in casinos and had strangers like Gorilla filmmaking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I will say that what I do believe with that film is that that was the breakout role for both of those actors. Yeah. Yeah. From there, they were skyrocketed. Yeah. Yeah. That was their Reservoir Dogs. That was their Reservoir Dogs. So <laughs> if you'd like to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And it's the same handle for all three. It is at 80s Montage Pod. And 80s is 80s. Sneak peek. What direction are we going and in? The thing where, is, where do you go from parting glances? We have two films left in this season. Okay. Crazy, right? That 2021 is coming to a close? It felt like it would never end. For 2021? Yeah. 2021 feels uh, in some ways worse than 2020. Okay, I won't disagree with you on that, but I can't <laughs> say... in with any honesty that I felt like 2021 dragged more than 2020. 2020 was like five years. Rolled I'm going to be one. honest to, to you and to anyone listening. <laughs> I don't understand time anymore. <laughs> 2020 broke I feel me. Like I don't tw- get it. 2021 flew by. Mm. And it's upsetting to me that like yet another year, because 2020 just felt like a huge waste. Well, what like, big holiday film are we going to cover next? <laughs> it's not a holiday film. <laughs> <laughs> 
Damn, what? But it is a great film. It is. I know what it is. It's a it's a film about family. Yes, yes. About uh, raising kids. It even has that in the title. About bounty hunters. Uh-huh. And about the state I grew up in, Arizona. Ooh, there you go. Raising yeah. Arizona. Yeah. I'm looking for it's it's a, such a fun movie. This one's like kind I mean, look, every film that we've covered has been awesome and it's like, oh, I'm so glad we got the chance to cover it. In in a weird way though, Raising Arizona feels like overdue. Yes. I have been waiting for a chance to talk about this movie. Yeah. So as always, we will have a wonderful guest to chat about with. Uh, for this film and thank you to everybody out there for hanging with us we will see you in two weeks time happy thanksgiving wait yeah no, okay you, perfect happy i mean it'll be technically after thanksgiving but this you know hope you the, had a good thanksgiving exactly there you go thanks guys 